Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. The plight of the sports fan aged somewhere in the mid to late 30s bracket. It's something I don't think gets enough time, enough airtime, to be honest, which is why I feel the need to bring it up on today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, Murph, and to a much greater extent, Ken. The well, forgotten early, men and women. Early 30s. Not forgotten long enough. You hit a certain age, you suddenly start being reminded on an almost daily basis of... Well, your lost youth, I guess. The sports people who are always in or around the same age as you growing up have all retired. Damn you, Stephen Gerrard. Another link severed. Why couldn't you just hang on one more year? Yeah. My brother's the same age as Ryan Giggs, so he played this game for a lot longer than other people would have. Yeah. The footballers and the ones to watch articles start being born in a different millennium to you. It used to be that like 1991 date of birth would make me go, oh my God, I'm so old. Yeah. Now it's 2001. Yes. That's pretty scary. And even some of the biggest stars in world sport here, Simone Biles of this world, mm. were born around the time you were thinking about how hard you're going to study for the leaving cert the following year. That kind of stuff. You know, it's, yeah. it's easy to feel old watching sport now. That's all I'm saying. But not today, Ken. Not today. Because today, thanks to the Australian Open Tennis, it's a day for the old codgers. Roger Federer, 35, yeah, 35 years of age, with sort of ferocious fight back from Stan Varenka to reach a men's final. Serena Williams, 35 also, is through to the women's final where she can break Steffi Graf's record for Grand Slam titles in the open era. Standing in her way, big sis Venus, 36. At 36 years old, she's through to the final in Melbourne for the first time in 14 years. So to all you old-timers listening, none of this actually makes us any younger, nor does it make us feel any younger. Oh, I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> I've got no uplifting message at the end. It doesn't well, make us feel any better, really. Well, does it make us feel better? Uh, well, I'm, I mean, it's mm. any one of those stories by themselves, any one of the three tennis stories you talked about would be heartening. But instead, I'm just worried about the future of tennis. <laughs> what's, what's happening there? Except to the young guns. The why, young. Why? Has there been anyone born in the 90s that, you know, is Plays any good at the tennis? Sport. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, what age is Andy Murray? He, he must be 30-ish. I think, I'm going to say Andy Murray's 29, Ken, and Murph is furiously Googling it as, um, we, as we speak. You're correct, Owen. 
Is he 29? Which would make him around the same. Djokovic is around the same age. Djokovic could be 30. Yeah. Um, well, and, uh, Djokovic is 29 years old as well. They're both 20. Yeah, they, they came up together through the junior ranks. I would have thought it would have been. I, I thought that I would have thought the um, the new Djokovic should have emerged by now. Or there should be somebody in the 32, 33 year old bracket in there. You know, what is it, what, that's Nadal. Well, Nadal's, Nadal's only 30. 30. Nadal's younger, yeah. younger than you would think. It's just he hasn't mm. been around very much really? lately with all the injuries. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so he is. Next up for Federer in the final, it's either Grigor, uh, Grigor Dimitrov, who could be the young gunslinger ready to take over. They call him the new Federer, uh, or Rafael Nadal, who is uh, still out and still there. Positively sprightly, just yeah. 30 years uh, of age in Australia this year. So here's Federer talking to Jim Courier on TV post match. Let's talk about your greatest rival in your career, Rafael Nadal, and what he's meant to you. and... Just look into that matchup and give us a little preview of how you'd be looking forward to that match. Yeah, it's real now. Um, I can really actually talk about playing a finals uh, for the first time. Um, I've been dodging that bullet, you know, for the last uh, last sort of days now, not talking about the next round and the next round, but this is the last one. So I'll leave it all out here in Australia. And if I can't walk for another five months, that's okay. So... Uh, so I'll, I'll give it all I have. Um, Rafael's definitely presented with me with the biggest challenge in the game. Um, I think I played him too many times on clay early in my, in my career, and I think that has something to do then the way I played him on different surfaces too. But uh, I think this court allows me to play offensive. Um, I mean, I'm probably his number one fan of Rafa. I think his game is just tremendous. He's an incredible competitor, and uh, I'm, I'm happy we did have some epic, epic battles over the years. And... Um, of course, it would be unreal to, to play here. I, I think both of us, we would have never thought that we were going to be here potentially playing in the finals because I went to open his, uh, his academy in Mallorca with him a few months back and uh, I told him, look, I wish we could do like a charity match or like a something. <laughs> but I was on one leg. He had the, the wrist injury and we were playing some mini tennis with some juniors and we're like, that's the best we can do right now. <laughs> A few months later, we're maybe going to be in the finals. I am. He may be. So it's, it's, I think it's very special for both of us this tournament already. So I just hope it's going to be a good match tomorrow. Thank you. I just realized this thing back there. I was watching it earlier on. I didn't, didn't pick it up at the time. That sounds like canned laughter. Mm-hmm. It's almost too perfect and too rounded a sound each time. But no, that's how the uh, loving Melbourne fan base of Roger Federer reacted to his very upbeat post-match interview there. He's such a classy guy. He's a class. That's the word I was thinking of. There's like like a bit of class to Roger Federer, all right. Uh, By the way, I I know that's a bit presumptuous that they were asking about Nadal. The previous question was about what happens if you're playing Dimitrov in the final. Hmm. So it was almost like a bit of politeness from Courier because everybody knows that people want it to be Nadal versus Federer. So he starts out by Dimitrov, a great all-round game, amazing player, this, that and the other. And And he says, and whether it's him or Rafa in the final... And as soon as you mentioned Rafa, even in the question about Dimitrov, the fans went, Ray! having been deathly silent during his platitudes about <laughs> the other potential opponents. So I think we all know what people want to happen there. Would you consider yourself a good loser? Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser, on. That's what I always say. Indeed. You guys don't even know it yet, but uh, by the end of this podcast, you will come to understand that loser is not a dirty word. Murph. I don't know where that phrase first came from. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. But it's going to be rebuffed. I'm going to say Vince Lombardi or some other Probably, Republican yeah. from the 1940s. Or 50s. <laughs> it's, got, it's got to be rebuffed today by Sam Wyman, who we've chatted to a few times this year in his role as digital editor at GolfDigest.com. Sam, uh, we've spoken to him a good few times over the last year or so, I should say. He's brought out a book called Win at Losing, in which he 
analyzes the phenomenon of losing, how to deal with it and how to benefit in the long run. Long run, I should say. Turns out, for those people who are beaten by all those old tennis players today, don't worry, you will have another shot and you, if you learn the right lessons, you can come back strong. There's something, uh, I think that's something that Carl Frampton has yet to deal with in his career, actually. Unbeaten 23 fights on Saturday night slash Sunday morning in Las Vegas. He defends his WBA featherweight title belt against Leo Santa Cruz, who himself only tasted defeat for the first time ever when he lost the belt to Frampton last year. That was a win that really launched Frampton into the big time in the US. Got a whole load of awards and recognition on the back of it. And we're going to talk to Andy Lee to see if he can get it done again. You wanted to talk Frampton there, did you? Well, no, just uh, being announced as the Ring Fighter of the Year, it doesn't get any more prestigious than that. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, the, it, the, the Ring magazine is for, you know, RC boxing fans who, you know, the the discerning boxing fan. Yeah, the idea behind, well, it's, it's a magazine that's been around forever, the Bible of boxing, all that kind of stuff. But also because boxing is such a fractured sport and you always have more than one champion mm. and sometimes four, at least four champions in a weight division at any one time. The Ring magazine is often looked at as the one that will cut through the bullshit and tell yeah. you who's actually best. Yeah, in the absence of the sport actually devising a system whereby the best fighters fight each other and then you can name <laughs> the best fighter, the Ring ma- Ring magazine fi- fighter of the year is about as clear cut as it gets in the boxing. And that's world. fighter of the year overall the divisions. Yeah. That's the point of that. I, I, what I like about the fight this weekend is it is two of the best in the division fighting each other and fighting each other for a second time, which you really don't see as much. Yeah. That used to be the, the standard practice, but not so much. We really are sounding like old old guys. Got to mm. stop this now. Luke Jensen from ESPN. It was so much to talk to you about, Luke, uh, with regards to the tennis over the last 24 hours or so. You must have been pretty excited with what you saw. The only bad thing is big here in the state. <sighs> is you, you pull the all-nighters. I mean, if Federer closes this thing out in three sets, I get some sleep. <laughs> but he, he draws it out to five sets. So I've got, I've, I'm running on zero sleep right now. But the, the women's side has been amazing. The old dogs in the fight. These 30-year-olds are just pulling through left and right. Not to mention the Bryan brothers in their, in their late 30s. They're still in the doubles. They're in the finals. So it's been amazing, crazy stuff. Yeah, crazy. Uh, Venus, 36 years of age. Serena, 35 years of age. Federer is 35. I'm just seeing BBC tweeting that he's the oldest man to reach a Grand Slam final, any Grand Slam final since 1974. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive. It should be a young man's game and a young woman's game. And to an extent it is, but, but these guys are still going. Well, that was the great uh, Australian Ken Rosewall, known as Muscles. He reached the finals of Wimbledon and then the followed up with the finals of the U.S. Open, got thumped both times by young Jimmy Connors. But I think the one thing that Federer has been able to do is always think about big picture, long term. You know, what does this mean for his career? He could have come back in last year's U.S. Open, but instead he said, you know, what if I take six months off? And this doctor was like off, off the charts. But if you could give me six months right now to work on this leg, to rehab this knee, I can give you three more years of performance. And I think that, that kind of mindset helps the older player. Uh, what I'm worried about, though, he's, he's gone some tough matches, five sets with Nishikori um, earlier in the tournament. Uh, then he goes five sets here. How much gas does he have left in the tank to play maybe his nemesis, Nadal, you know, maybe baby fed, you know, D- Dimitrov. So it's going to be very tricky this final. Luke, we were watching this match in the office and we were remarking how tennis is, uh, the momentum is a big deal in all sports, but in tennis, it's incredible how it can switch a couple of times even within one set. This had all the hallmarks of Stan Wawrinka, a really dogged player, really top quality player. He had completely wrestled the initiative from 
Federer. He, he he was looked like he was going to romp home. He was, you know, he's on break point a couple of times on Federer serve in the fifth set, having come from two sets down. And out of nowhere, Federer switches and then crushes him for the rest of the match. How did he do it? Well, I think the biggest thing is that in our game, you don't have on-court coaching like you have in other sports. It's closer to golf, even boxing. In between rounds, you get your trainer, your cut man. That's a big difference. In tennis, there is some stuff where you look to your box, but it's, you have to do it all on your own. And because of that, in my opinion, I played, you have these momentous you know, shifts of momentum. Tides turn so quickly. And if you look at, you know, especially the way individuals deal with pressure, because it's an individual game, you can't substitute out. You can't put fresh legs in. It's all on you. And, you know, Vavrinka is so, you know, kind of locked into what Federer kind of does because he was like the understudy to Federer all these years. Knows everything about Federer. Practiced with him. Ate with him. Did all these different things with him. So he knows when Federer is like starting to come down a little bit. And after two sets to love, the pressure shifted again right to Roger Federer and Favrika started hitting freer, relaxed, going for his shots. They get into a fifth set, and you, you really have to look at the nuances. When I saw Roger Federer take that injury timeout to go in to get his leg wrapped, the upper thigh, upper groin, somewhere in there. It wasn't very specific, but it was up high, so he had to go off the court and get it uh, addressed. That was kind of the reset Federer needed, just a little extra rest to put him over the top. Yeah, and it was interesting. He was quite funny afterwards when he was asked about it by Jim Courier. He said, well, look, you know, I don't usually go in for these uh, for these injury breaks, but <laughs> pretty much everyone else does it, so why can't I do it from time to time? And uh, well, it's, yeah. it seemed to work, yeah. He'll be questioned on that. He, a lot of critics will like say, man, you've always been against this. You've always been a critical of players to do that. Uh, to me, I don't think that's out of bounds. I see it all the time. These players are running miles upon miles on these courts. They're giving you three, four-plus hours. They're just laying it out there, their guts and their grit. A couple of moments here and there in between sets is not a big deal to me. I don't think it was a massive, you know, big difference. Vavrinka had the same amount of break, and I just think that it was better was too good in the, in the five sets. Do you feel a little bit sorry in this scenario now over the next 24 hours for Grigor Dimitrov? I don't think anybody outside the Dimitrov uh, family circle and coaching circle uh, wants anything other than a Nadal-Federer final. Uh, I guess that could be good motivation for, for Dimitrov, though. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, Baby Fed's really playing on house money. He wins the warm-up tournament in Sydney. He's coming in really hot. He's starting to come into his own. This is a guy who was given the big contracts and the big dollars. He dated the really hot chicks like Sharapova. Everything was like kind of handed to him. But his game suffered. He was distracted by all the goodies and all the candy. And now he's come to realize he's got to play ball. He's got to get in there and, and train and focus and do those, those little things. And you can see it's really paid off for him. I think Nadal's going to get him. And I think we're going to have a classic matchup. Nadal's going to win probably four sets over Dimitrov. And I, my heart wants Federer to win this, and my heart wants Federer to beat Nadal. 
just a last one. Uh, if we're praising Federer so highly as we should for making it into a final again, what about Venus Williams, who has had the added complication of this Sjogren syndrome over the last number of years, which has obviously affected her career? How much respect do you have for her for making it through to face her sister once again? First time in eight years in a major final. In a major final. How about that? I mean, she's. I couldn't believe she was still playing. I mean, she's got so many things going on off the court. She's got her own clothing line, designers. She's got an interior design company. She's got so many things bopping around that can keep her busy in life and keep her going. But the tennis was always the one, one thing where she stayed on the court, took some losses, just kept going, dealing with those physical situations. I have so much, you know, just pride, so much, so much respect for her sticking it out and you know what? Serena better be careful because Venus isn't going to roll over. Venus, Venus is going to hit some big serves, some big shots. She's going to have to. But this is not going to be an easy rollover for Serena. Serena doesn't like playing in these pressure situations. We've seen it the last couple of years where she's kind of, you know, stumbled at the finish line. You know, you just you got to watch Venus who's going for the throat on this one. It's a hell of a tournament so far. Listen, Luke Jensen, ESPN. Great to talk to you. Glad you're enjoying it. Own, you're amazing. <laughs> Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. I'm telling you, I haven't talked to Luke in too long. You can feel pretty good about yourself after a chat with mm. Luke. <laughs> Own, you're am- Is this how we're going to... Instead of the thank yous at the end of the show, I should do Own, you're amazing, Ken. You're amazing. Well, maybe, maybe it is a nice habit to get into, just to finish your conversations by saying that sort of thing. Yeah, instead of goodbye, you're amazing. I, isn't that what Donald Trump does? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just thinking of it. Something like that. You're yeah. the best. You're the greatest. You're the greatest, yeah. Every time he hung up, hung up the phone with uh, regardless of who Tony was. Schwartz. Yeah. You're the greatest. Yeah. But maybe, it, maybe it works. I mean, to be fair, Owen was glowing with happiness and we, we both felt envious. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, I remember in it's the days, very scientific, but it in the days before Emoji, mm. um, when uh, Owen Coyle, send a text message sometimes you bring your text on coil and say oh and would you mind uh, you know are you free maybe take a call have a chat about former Ireland international this or that and he would send back a message saying uh, no actually not free uh, but happy to talk some other time and then a little smiley face with it made of a colon and smiling bracket mm-hmm. and I always thought when I I always felt oddly affected by those messages mm. I thought yeah, what a bloody nice bloke! Never, never had the interview. But <laughs> what a lovely man! Obviously, never talks to us, but um, but just put in that little smiley face, and I thought, okay. So uh, you know, I think it's I think it's generally more positivity is is good. Let's not be afraid to tell each other how great we are. Carl Frampton's fans have been streaming into Las Vegas over the last twenty four hours or so. There's talk of about five thousand of them being there on Saturday night for the rematch with Leo Santa Cruz, which means you can expect plenty of Framptons on fire. Santa Cruz is terrified. Chance. Which they belted out after the uh, after the last fight, but can he back up last year's win, which earned Frampton the Ring Magazine Fight of the Year award? Andy Lee's going to tell us. Andy, how's the form? Good, Don. Thanks very much. I saw you were chatting to Michael Foley in the Sunday Times, and you brought up the well, one of either you or the journalist brought up the good wall choice that you made mm-hmm. on Second Captains Live a couple of years back, where you put Frampton into the top ten Irish uh, sports people of all time. Much to my amusement, I must say, I didn't. I didn't I didn't doubt that Frampton was a, a high-level fighter, but I didn't realise that he would be in that sort of a bracket. But I'd say you're feeling pretty smug about that choice now. 
Yeah, I feel uh, <laughs> I feel uh, pretty good about it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ring fight of the year. It's the only area I ever Irish fighter to get it, and it's it's a real accolade. You know, um, it's the equivalent of an Oscar. Oscar, you know, winning an Oscar for best actor. It's uh, it's a fantastic achievement, and it's and it's fully deserved. Um, you know what he did last year. Um, what can, he's done previously, but yeah. can you put that into context? Um, what he did last year by stepping up in weight and mm. knocking Santa Cruz off his perch. Mm. Not only that, beating his biggest rival at super bantamweight, Scott Quigg, in a fight that was much hype and built over the years, and um, performing, you know, on the, which you know would have been the biggest and most pressured stage, beating him convincingly, and then stepping up in weight and fighting one of the best, like established champions at featherweight um becoming a two-weight world champion um and doing it with you know a very pleasing style and uh crowd pleasing style and you know technically a very you know very good way boy of boxing so it's um it's poorly deserved there was no one who, who, who's done what he did last year in terms of winning you know winning two world titles at different weights and um and the fact that he's going back to fight santa cruz again should be commended again it's it's another achievement because it's very rare in this day and age where you have fighters who are willing to test himself every fight. Um, you know, he'd be forgiven for taking us an easier fight, um, maybe defending a, defending his belt at home and then going again. But he's stepping right back in there with Santa Cruz, and it's not something that happens, you know, very often in boxing these days. Yeah, the idea of a rematch is it's appealing in a lot of ways, um, not the least of which is boxing is a sport that used to have this uh, to, to a greater extent. It used to have rivalries, used to have these great fighters fighting each other. Not just, we all know that you know, fighters can avoid fighting the other best guys, but when you've already fought against somebody as good as Santa Cruz to fight him again, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see what happens. It's a, it's a rivalry essentially being built here. Yeah, and it, it has all the ingredients for, like, I don't want to say but if you know it has all the ingredients for a trilogy you know uh they were so evenly matched but i, I fought frampton won the second fight convincingly even though one judge had a, a majority you know in, in favor of santa cruz which i don't know what he was what he was looking at the first fight but um i believe both fighters will be impro- improved in this in this fight uh they will have they've had the experience of of fighting each other once already they'll know what to look for and then they will have, you know, they will be trying to implement a new game plan and try to um, correct the mistakes that they've made. So both fighters have, you know, have something to motivate themselves. It's Frampton's second fight at the weight. He'll be, he's already beaten Santa Cruz, so he has that edge on him. And he's going to be more comfortable at the weight where Santa Cruz has the motivation of having lost, wanting to prove himself. And... Um, with the fight being on the west coast i think that's a little even though the I, it might be nullified a bit by the 5000 frampton fans traveling i'm sure they'll be well heard in the arena the fact that it's on the west coast and there's a couple of mexican fighters fighting on the undercard it'll be a strong mexican crowd i, I believe and uh, so you know it's it's an intriguing fight as well as the styles how they match up santa cruz is a pressure fighter but he's also the taller fighter, and he had the, he had his best moments, I thought, in this in the first fight when he stood at range, and um, punched from distance, not crowded overcrowded his work by getting too close. Um, so it's it's an intriguing it's an intriguing fight, you know. Uh, which way? Who's gonna? Who's gonna? Like, how you set out your stall for the second fight, and what tactics do you try to employ? 
Um, do you try, you know, if you, do you anticipate the fighters changing their game plans? It's intriguing to see, to see how it will unfold. Well, Frampton seems to think, and Shane McGuigan seems to think, seems to think that Santa Cruz won't change anything because he can't change anything. That he only fights one way. He he's, as you say, a pressure fighter. He throws over a thousand punches in a fight, and that that's all he can do. But you seem to be suggesting that actually maybe he can switch it up a bit. Maybe he can stay out of stay at range and change things up, and maybe make Frampton come to him a bit. I I've just been listening to a few things he was saying in the build up to the fight, and seems to be that they're not he's still going to throw the volume of punches he's not going to be almost like a fancy damn boxer on the outside you know moving around but he's, he's i think what he's been saying is that his plan is to hold his feet not to be walking in in almost you know to take two punches to land three that kind of a style where he's going to hold his feet and use his use his height and his arm and his arms and reach advantage you know so it'll be interesting but Frampton, you know even if he does that it still might not be enough because Frampton is a very intelligent fighter very well balanced and very precise and um, has good power too he hurt he hurt Santa Cruz in the first fight early in the fight and I think it took Santa Cruz a while to to overcome that you know it took him three or four rounds before he really got back into the fight so Frampton knows he can hurt him and it's interesting that they've been talking about going for the knockout a little bit and mm. it's a big statement to make and if he does it, it would be he'll have made a big statement. Yeah, there's an interview that Frampton did with Don McRae and he said, it's just about being smarter this time, hitting him clean and putting more emphasis into those shots. If I do that, I think I can effing knock him out. I really do. Which by that, like by Frampton's standards, that's pretty much trash talk right there. Yeah. He's not really a big it's trash a, talker. It's a, it's a bold statement. and uh, But I, his confidence is high and he believes it. And it wouldn't surprise me if he did. You know, um, that's how good he is. That's how highly I rate him. So, um, you know, it's just great to see and like I said I feel very much uh, <laughs> like I told you so I have that I told you so moment <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah so it's good just, just on the emotional side of things away from the tactics of it one thing that would worry me slightly is this issue around Santa Cruz's dad who's in his corner has always been in his corner but uh, was receiving treatment for cancer the last time so he wasn't there he's getting better thankfully and he is going to be around this time of things this this time that would lead you to believe that Santa Cruz, there's no way that kind of stuff can't affect you going into a fight. And mm. he's got to be in a better frame of mind this time around. So maybe the Santa Cruz that Frampton saw last time wasn't actually him at 100% emotionally. Exactly. And, you know, everything, it's well noted that he had a disruptive camp, that his dad wasn't involved, that he was receiving chemo and that his brother was training him. And then his dad traveled to New York the week of the fight and tried to, changed the game plan almost and instructed his son to do to do a different you know to do something different that, that they hadn't planned in camp and then santa cruz has said that he found himself caught in between two styles of fighting not knowing which way to to follow his father or his brother hmm. um that's a nightmare that, that sounds like the worst possible yeah, preparation and I, i've said this before and it's, it's it's the truest word like the truest thing i can think of but Whatever you're going through, and it, boxing is is the tr like when you see a fight, you see the two people at that you know in that truest form because what you've experienced in the build of that fight and what you've gone through in the training camp up to that fight, it all shows itself in the performance. Um, and saying that, if, if he did have a troubled training camp and had these problems going into it, he still performed pretty well, you know. Mm. Um, it was a close fight, and and it was could arguably one of the fights of the year, um, but. Yeah, that's you. It's another reason why you, we can expect a, a better Leo Santa Cruz. The fact that he's had a, a more um, 
you know, a peaceful training camp and that he'll have prepared a lot better and he'll have a one, you know, one strict vision of what what he's going to do and one clear um, instruction what he's going to do in the fight. But having said all that, you think Frampton will do it again and will really, I mean, he's been getting a lot of attention stateside and around the boxing mm. world. If he backs this up, there's a certain there's a certain sort of aura around a fighter who can do that, who can give the rematch and then win the rematch. You think he's going to do yeah. it? Um, I, I still favour Frampton. Um, even though I think it'll be a better fight, I think Frampton has too many aspects to his game. He can fight going forward. He can he can slug it out if he has to. But if he if he chooses to box, which I think he will, I think he'll win um, pretty convincingly. And uh, it's still going to be tough. Believe me, I think it'll be a tough fight. But I, I can see Frampton winning a pretty good wide decision. He stays on the good wall for you. Listen, Andy, great stuff. Yeah. Thanks a million. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much. Won't you bring back all those colours to my dreams? Don't give a damn about the money, being shot, take the title, take it all, and go to jail tomorrow. This Tumpus got everybody scared. Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer. Well, Chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulman fall, the mountains will fall. Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. This fresh young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. You saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good-looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry. He had it all. Sugar man, met a false friend on a lonely, dusty road. A specimen, fighting machine. You know, it was handsome. It was articulate. It was funny. Charismatic. Was whooping ass too. The good news, if you want to watch the fight, is that it is on Sky Sports One as opposed to Sky Box Office or anything like that. So if you already have Sky, you can. I was about to say it's on terrestrial TV. Sky's not quite that, but it sometimes feels like it. You don't have to pay any extra money on top of the money you already pay extra to have a Sky Sports subscription. So you can watch that. It will be the middle of the night. It will be very late Vegas time. So whatever way you do these things, I know you go to bed early, set an alarm, get up. People often ask for exact times. I don't know, but I, and if it's Vegas, it's going to be particularly late. The ring walks. If you and if you do tend, tend to be, if you do stay up rather than go to bed, I, I and you fancy, you know, a few beers maybe to just keep you. Too, Can't do it anymore, Murph. I'm too old. Just regulate your drinking. I'm here, uh, with an <laughs> See, it, it can have it, it has its pluses and also its well that minuses. man I tried to watch it you can be sure that man will be in Vegas and will not be watching won't be needing to watch it on TV or anything like that yeah Sky's uh, Sky's coverage of uh, Ken that man is also a keen football fan so I'm sure if he's listening he'd like to know what's in the Irish Times second Captain's football podcast today that's yeah they have asked for that really well, you can laugh walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. Oh, I'd, like I'd, like I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> Well, and we talked a little bit about what's happened to um, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool Football Club revolution. 
are the believers becoming doubters? And we talked also about the Africa Cup of Nations with Jonathan Wilson, who is over in Gabon reporting uh, for, uh, well, for everybody. Yeah, everybody some really nice stories better, from but, uh, yeah. some nice stories from Gabon, from the Africa Cup of Nations. From Jonathan, you heard Luke Jensen earlier praising Venus Williams for her ability to deal with the setbacks that she's faced in her career and bounce back to make it into another Grand Slam final. I'd imagine that sort of resilience would impress our next guest, Sam Weinman. We've spoken to Sam plenty of times in his day job at GolfDigest.com, but he recently brought out a fascinating new book called "Win at Losing: How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains." Sam, great to have you on the show as always. Oh, my pleasure, Owen. Thank you. I think the Venus example is quite apt at the moment because I believe the genesis of this book came from a tennis match you attended, albeit (laughs) at a a slightly lower level. It's just a a hair lower, but uh, the parallels are there. Yes, my my book started with my son, a 10-year-old club tennis match, losing uh, a match and having a sort of meltdown and and, uh, swearing off tennis forever. But from that came this realization to me that you know not only do my kids need to learn to lose but people in general need to understand that losing has really good uh, benefits and you know it can really shape us in positive ways and so I kind of I went down this road of talking to people in all all sorts of walks of life sports but also politics and business about how various pockets of adversity um, help them. Slight digression but is Charlie young Charlie a Roger or a Rafa man? Well uh, very much a Rafa in fact uh <laughs> He wears a headband in tribute to Rafa. So <laughs> right. it's, not even, it's not even a question. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be you'll probably find a way to watch it tomorrow. I'd imagine the yes. semi-final. The, so you say this, okay, I mean, obviously, you're supposed to lose graciously. That's what you're taught, either formally right. or informally growing up. You know, you should try not to be a bad loser. You should try not to have tantrums, which is pretty hard to do. Are you talking about losing graciously, or are you talking about learning something from your defeats so that you can improve as a, as a sports person or as a businessman or whatever it might yeah. be? Yeah. I, I'm talking about both, but but more the latter. Certainly, you know, sportsmanship and being gracious and dignified in these moments is, is important. I don't mean to undercut uh, that, but you know, in my mind, especially, I'm a terrible loser in the moment. You know, as as Charlie is in terms of, I think, um, you know, we can get emotional and be upset about losing, and I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. What I am saying is that once you have that moment and it passes, what are you doing next to learn and grow from it? And it's not always linear. There's not always like this great revelation, but it's just like being open to the idea that, okay, this is probably something that can help, and it's probably exposing something that I need to work on, and how can I capitalize on that? And and so, yes, uh, you know, I don't advocate throwing rackets or banging your stick or whatever the, whatever the instrument is, but I do feel like you're allowed to be emotional provided you are just being constructive about it as well. The sort of people you talk to, have they all come full circle? Are they at a, at a distance from their failures, if you know what I mean? Are you talking to people who learned from their failures, became successful and can now deal with it? Or was there anybody who is still in the throes of, of not having quite come to terms with whatever they failed at? Or lost, I yeah, say. that's a good point. I mean, it's like I make the point that it's not just always this great redemption where, you know, person X has a failure, learns from mistakes and goes on to have this great success. Some people never recovered. Like one of the examples, of course, is um, Michael Dukakis, who ran for president in 1988 and lost the election, didn't run for public office again. So by that measure, he's not someone who can say, oh, I learned from the lessons of my first presidential defeat to go on to to apply them to to winning the presidency back or winning whatever, but he was someone who sort of learned to 
accept defeat and, and it helped him as a person. So, uh, and he did grow from it and became, you know, philosophical about what went wrong and, and, and why, why he lost. So I, I, you know, he's someone, I guess you could say still dealing with it to an extent. I mean, is it funny enough that when I first handed in the draft of the book, um, I, I talked about Jordan Spieth. Um, I didn't talk about Jordan Spieth, I should say. I, I had written this chapter about Greg Norman losing the Masters in 1996, and then uh, you and I spoke shortly thereafter yeah. that you know Jordan Spieth had this colossal meltdown in the Masters, and so I felt compelled to include him in the book. And so you know he's a bit of an open book in terms of how he's going to respond to it, but but um, you know by all indications he's someone who's going to look at what happened and try to learn from it, but. Who knows? Maybe Jordan Spieth never wins a major again, or never contends in a major again. Probably not. But, but um, you know, he's someone where he hasn't had the time to, you know, apply the proper perspective to what happened to him. Yeah, that was when we first touched on this book. Actually, you you told us that you were in the middle of writing it at the time, and mm-hmm. you, you had interviewed Greg Norman. What sort of perspective did Norman have on his fairly spectacular blowouts at a couple of major events, the Masters in particular? Yeah, well, in his case, again, he's kind of like Dukakis in the sense that he never won another major or you know never really reached the same heights as a player uh but for him it shaped him in terms of it humbled him and sort of made him a much more accessible person and businessman i mean here was a guy who was vastly successful by most accounts you know flew his plane into to tournaments and you know had various homes around the world but he wasn't really someone who people could connect with on a human level just because he seemed so larger than life and then he has this amazing collapse in the Masters. You know, he had other collapses in tournaments, but this was sort of the most dramatic because he had a six-shot lead and shot 76, and it sort of carried out over the course of an afternoon. And he handled it in such an admirable and gracious way and owned up to the mistakes. And I feel like people uh, really connected with him in ways that they hadn't before, and he recognized that. But then also, you know, in this sort of second act he's had as a businessman and executive, he's a big proponent of learning from your failures and what you can reply to them. And he's had a bunch in the, in the business world as well. And I think he sees that that, that has real benefits. How proactive, you got to be careful, I guess, that you're not wallowing in self-pity when you lose a big event. You have to analyze, there's a couple of traps you could fall into, I guess. You could get too wrapped up in why you lost and the reasons why you lost and overanalyze somewhat. Or also you can you can say right I'm, I've 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 thought about it I've talked about it and right. you can almost convince yourself that you've dealt with it when you haven't. Yeah, this is a this is a very tricky area, and you're dead on. It's kind of a tight balance that you walk because um, there's there is a point where you're dwelling too long on it, and you're obsessing over it, and that's not very productive. And maybe you're beating yourself up for um, something that's not entirely your fault. Like there's a part of that as well, which is you've had a loss, and there could be a whole series of events that that led to it that might not might be outside your control so in some in some way you have to also be able to give yourself a pass or forgive yourself but there's also this real risk of sort of glossing over it and not dealing with it and just kind of skipping ahead and you know that's a huge miss as well because you're failing to see you know what you can take away from it so Mm. um you know the sort of common ingredient you need to have is real honesty like when you go through some type of loss is having a real solid 360 degree sense of what happened so that you know how to sort of compartmentalize it it's interesting on the federer on the in the tennis example federer was talking to jim courier on australian tv afterwards and he was asked about nadal obviously and the possibility of him playing in another final and I would have loved for this part of the conversation to for, for it to be in a different forum where you could actually really drill down into Federer's thoughts because he said something really interesting. 
he, he made the point that Nadal, he's obviously had a lot of matches against Nadal and lost quite a lot of matches against Nadal. And he says he because he played him quite a lot on clay early in his career, or certainly earlier in Nadal's career, and lost those matches, that seeped into how he thought about how he was supposed to play him on other surfaces and possibly negatively affected him there it was just it was just an interesting comment and yeah. that's clearly somebody a guy who uh, Federer is obviously somebody who loses well in the sense that he thinks right. about what he could do but even somebody at that uh, that vaunted status can get too sure. wrapped up in what an opponent is doing well that, that's really interesting it's sort of uh, something I talk about in the book it's something called a negativity bias which is you have this you know there's like a part of our brains are wired to focus a little bit on the negative and sometimes it can be really counterproductive because, you know, like the negativity bias is something that roots back to when we were, you know, cavemen basically. And we had to know, you know, don't eat this plant because it might poison you and die. So you have this sort of, your brain is trained to focus on things to, to more mostly as a protective measure. And so, but it seeps into how we play sports because you're like, oh, this is a guy I always lose to. And he kind of triggers all these thoughts about how he always loses to him. So you're right. Even though he lost to him a bunch in clay and had a pretty good record, a relatively good record uh, against Fed or against Nadal in, on other surfaces, it, it might weigh on his psyche in a, in a negative way and so how do you learn like how do you extract the positives from those experiences and like what you can learn from it without um, immediately submitting to the fact that oh i'm definitely gonna lose because this guy just has my number it's a again very tricky balance you mentioned michael dukakis earlier sam he lost the 1988 presidential election lost heavily to george hw bush having led in the polls early on so i would imagine he's one of the few people in the world who can truly have an idea what Hillary Clinton had to go through on Inauguration Day, grinding her way through the inauguration of President Trump there and trying to trying to do her, her civic duty uh, and pull it off with, uh, with, with a smile on her face. Um, yeah. It, did you get those parallels? Uh, you know, when, when, the, yes. when Hillary started totally. unraveling, did you start feeling, Jesus, this is, this is very similar to what I was talking to Dukakis yeah. about? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many things that are similar. Obviously, this is such a unique situation on so many levels uh, with what we're dealing with in this country. But there are some parallels in terms of the individual, which is here is someone who was ahead in the polls, seemed to be poised to win, um, lost and, you know, end up losing big, probably won't run for public office again you never know but probably won't and so now has to sort of reconcile how she feels about herself about her career what she does the rest of her life i think the the, the biggest you know there's the individual message to like a hillary clinton someone which is that michael dukakis lost the presidency you know three decades ago and has had a very productive life in public service since then you know connecting with people he's been a professor and been an advocate for various social um causes so he's you know made a lot of done a lot of good things in the years since he was president. So Hillary Clinton should realize um, that's very applicable to her as well. And then there's sort of this macro look at like, like how do we as a country who did not support Donald Trump deal with the fact that our guy, you know, our guy did not win and he's our president. Well, you know, you, you, there you make the case that, you know, Michael Dukakis's loss paved the way for Bill Clinton to win four years later. And, you know, it sort of strengthened the democratic base. So there's, there's all kinds of, uh, parallels to draw from that and to look at that as an example of how things might play out from here. Were there people who didn't want to talk? Did you contact many people who said, here, listen, <laughs> I don't want to go back into the worst part of my life or my career uh, yeah. f- for you to there get an interesting people. book? Yeah, totally. There, they were. And for I would say that if that was the case, then that was pr- they were probably not the best people to talk to me anyway. I mean, they would have been good as a sort of counterpoint to this whole, mm. whole premise. But the... What I was looking for was people who could 
recognized, you know, my premise that losing has value in their lives and was a positive thing. Not to say they enjoyed it, but that they saw that it shaped them in a positive way. So if you had people, and I had a couple, like, you know, athletes, like, I don't want to talk about that. I didn't lose. And it was ridiculous that those people um, don't don't necessarily get it and aren't really going to be uh, instructive for other people to learn from. So that was one part of it. The other part yeah. is, like, you know, there's just people I tried to get and I couldn't get them. You know, like Bill Buckner, baseball player you may be familiar with, like, had this cold mistake in the World Series in 1986. I tried to track him down. I thought he'd be great, and he just never. I just never heard back from him, which is sort of the, the life we lead as a journalist. Sometimes people just don't want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, it's true enough. Well, listen, Sam Wyman, the book is called "Win at Losing." We recommend people uh, check it out for themselves. Uh, Amazon.com, I presume, would be the best best bet internationally. Yes, you can get it at Amazon.com or my website is uh, samwyman.com. There's a lot of information there as well. Perfect. I hope for the Weinman, for the sake of the Weinman household, that Rafa pulls through tomorrow anyway and has another <laughs> shot at Roger. Listen, Sam, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Second captain. They're better at the internet than we are. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second captain. Do you believe this? It's so unbelievable. Second captain. On the internet. I'm going to bomb the shit out of them. It's true. I don't care. I don't care. They've got to be stopped. We did a piece on Monday's show about Donald Trump's friendship with Tom Brady, if you remember that one. Now, at the risk of offending one of our listeners, Damien Mallon, who tweeted me on Monday, 20 minutes of political debate before any actual sports analysis on the sports podcast yesterday. Sorry, not why I subscribed. At the risk of offending that gentleman. Seems like Brady Kent might have some competition as Trump's number one sports guy. Yeah, um... (laughs) Well, it's, it's hard to know who the number one is, but definitely Bernard Langer is up there. Um, How did Langer come into the conversation? Well, Trending on uh, Twitter nationally in the US uh, yesterday. Bernard Langer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people wondering, hmm, they've come to the seniors tour quite late, but uh, welcome aboard <laughs> all the new fads. The Ooh, swing is looking good. <laughs> the New York Times reported that, uh, uh, that when Donald Trump was speaking to House and Senate leaders in the state dining room, um, he said, um, I was told a story, he, he was complaining about voter fraud, you know, this thing, he claims that there was millions of people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, and he says, uh, I was told a story by the very famous golfer Bernard Langer. Now, this is obviously, this is not like a, a covered, this is a kind of a, an off-the-record type of a meeting, you know, it's not like a media event, mm. it's kind of a, you know. Because he very ostentatiously brings Tom Brady's up name up in public. This is more of a private meeting. So three separate witnesses had told had told this story at the New York Times uh, in which, um, so he said that Bernard Langer told him that uh, he was standing in a queue at, near a polling station in Florida where he lives on, on election day queuing to vote. Um, when suddenly he was informed by an official that he would not be able to vote. Um, now, ahead of and behind Mr. Langer were voters who did not look as if they should be allowed to vote. Let that sink in now. Mr. That's Trump said, according that. to the staff members. But they were nonetheless permitted to cast provisional ballots. The president threw out the names of Latin American countries the voters might have come from. Mr. Langer, whom he described as a supporter, uh, left feeling frustrated according to a version of events later contradicted by a White House official. <laughs> the anecdote, the aide said, was greeted with silence. And Mr. Trump was prodded to change the subject by Ryan's previous White House chief, chief of staff. Uh, so, the, so the issue with this is that um, 
uh, Langer is in fact still a German. Mm. He's not. Uh, <laughs> he is a German citizen who has permanent residency in the United States. So by law, he can't vote. You know, he, he has never voted. His daughter told the New York Times, he's a citizen of Germany. He's not a friend of President Trump's. I don't know why he would talk about him. <laughs> but uh, Trump insists. He also mentioned in, in the, I don't know if you saw his, his, his interview that he did yesterday, in which he advocated all kinds of things, like numerous war crimes and, and whatnot. Uh, but he said that uh, in, in, amongst, <laughs> in amongst all that, he said, that uh, he he had got a standing ovation when he did this speech at the at the CIA. He said, "I got I got a standing ovation." Now, ABC was so apparently so confused by this that they just left it out altogether. But it is in their transcript, the transcript they produced of the entire interview. It was obviously a slightly edited version that they aired. Um, but in the transcript, uh, he, he said, "You know, uh, I spoke to the crowd. This is Trump talking about talking to the CIA." I spoke to the crowd. I got a standing ovation. In fact, they said it was the biggest standing ovation since Peyton Manning had won the Super Bowl, and they said it was equal. I got a standing ovation. It lasted for a long period of time. I know when I do good speeches, I know when I do bad speeches, that speech was a total home run. They loved it. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess it must have been yeah. Peyton Manning's Super Bowl win last year. He won it he won yeah. last year with the Denver Broncos. Yeah, and it... it the standing ovation is also up for debate since he didn't actually ask them to sit down. So they actually were standing for the duration of his speech. Apparently, they don't sit down unless the president explicitly instructs them, you can sit down but now. Sorry, I don't even understand what he's comparing it to. What, what standing ovation did Peyton Manning get? When do you, Did he do a function afterwards? Owen, is he talking about the supporters at the Owen, at I the really stadium? don't know. I don't know, Owen. And I don't know who they is. Was this the CIA who said that's the, big, it, that's it the biggest standing that, ovation since Peyton Manning won the Super Bowl? We, all, we all watched it here in the bar, the CIA bar. No, it, it appears to me as if Peyton Manning had made an informal visit to the CIA, spoke to a number of people at the CIA. After winning who, the Super Bowl. Who gave him a standing ovation. Okay. Apparently, Peyton Manning is going to meet him in the next few days uh, to to talk about, I, I guess... Tom Brady's not going to like that. Yeah, you know, maybe he's just playing them off against each other. What have you done for me lately, Tom Brady? Bernard Langer's not going to like that, more to the void. His new, the apple in his, new apple in his eye. Bernard Langer just seems a little bit confused by everything that's going on and probably hoping not to be dragged into this <laughs> arena again. Langer's like, I just want to go and play some tournament that not many people will watch, but I will probably win about half a million. Bernard Langer more. told Donald Trump that he was surrounded by people who looked as though they shouldn't be allowed to vote as he was waiting to vote. <laughs> he wasn't waiting to vote. And he apparently doesn't know him and I don't know. Well, yeah. But well, why, why, not just, why not just the name Bernard Langer? Why not just talk, start talking about Bernard Langer all of a sudden? Hmm. It seems almost too crazy to imagine such a story. And yet, Ken, and yet. <laughs> and yet. Next week, Corey Pavin. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> uh, thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Kieran. Owen, you're amazing. Ken, you're amazing. Thank you, Kieran. Listeners, you're, you're, awesome. you're all amazing, including you, Damien Mallon. I'm sorry for bringing politics back into a bit. Of, it's okay to branch out from time to time, Damien. Maybe 20 minutes, some could argue, too much. Who knows? I understand that there is, there is a very understandable urge to not to want to ignore all of this, an urge which maybe is going to become more and more overpowering as this goes on. But like at the moment, you know, it seems as though it's quite difficult to tear your eyes away from this unfolding train wreck that is the planet. So... We, there may be we may occasionally sprinkle references to this uh, planetary train wreck. 
Oh, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. 